Laura London, and this is a special video edition of Speaking of Jung. Joining us today for episode 109 is Jungian analyst and psychiatrist, Dr. John Beebe in San Francisco, California. He graduated from Harvard University with a Bachelor of Arts in English in 1961 and went on to attend medical school at the University of Chicago, where he received a Doctor of Medicine in 1965. After an internship at the United States Public Health Service Hospital in the Presidio of San Francisco, he practiced as a psychiatrist before deciding to train as a Jungian analyst. He earned his diploma in analytical psychology, which is the degree of a Jungian analyst, from the C.G. Jung Institute of San Francisco in 1978. Dr. Beebe has been in private practice for over 40 years. He served as president of the San Francisco Jung Institute, founded the San Francisco Jung Institute Library Journal, now titled Jung Journal, Culture and Psyche, and was the first American co-editor of the London-based Journal of Analytical Psychology. He taught as a clinical assistant professor of psychiatry at the University of California Medical School and is a distinguished life fellow of the American Psychiatric Association. In 1991, he delivered the annual Fay Lecture Series. His talks on integrity in depth were published the following year by Texas A&M University Press. He is the author of Energies and Patterns in Psychological Type, The Reservoir of Consciousness, and co-author with Jungian analyst Virginia Apperson of The Presence of the Feminine in Film. He is also the editor of Jung's Aspects of the Masculine, part of the series Extracts from the Collected Works of C.G. Jung, and co-editor with Ernst Faltziter of The Question of Psychological Types, the correspondence of C.G. Jung and Hans Schmid Guisson. His essay, The Trickster in the Arts, was republished just this month in the volume Anthology of Contemporary Clinical Classics and Analytical Psychology, The New Ancestors, edited by Jungian analyst Stefano Carpani. Dr. Beebe is with us today to discuss the latest volume in the series of Jung's lectures delivered at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology, known as the ETHA. The book is part of the Philemon series of the Philemon Foundation, published by Princeton University Press. It is volume two, Consciousness and the Unconscious, edited by Ernst Baltziter. Please visit the website, speakingofyoung.com, there it is, where you will find links to everything discussed in this episode in the show notes. This video interview is being live streamed on Wednesday, May 11th, 2022 through the magic of StreamYard. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Beebe. Welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you. So you have done quite a number of interviews and presentations. And as I said, you've been a Jungian analyst for over 40 years. So since I have you here today to talk about a specific book, uh, a book of Jung's lectures. I would like to tell the listeners that I will have a tremendous amount of links to Dr. Beebe's work in the show notes for this episode. And there are two previous interviews that you've done that I would like to point out. In the beginning, you sat down with Jungian analyst Beverly Zabriskie, who was my guest in episode 85 at the IAAP Congress in Montreal back in 2010, and it was transcribed and published in the Journal of Analytical Psychology the following year. Uh, it is titled John Beebe in Conversation with Beverly Zabriskie, and it is wonderful. It's quite long, uh, and I will provide a link to it, as I said, in the show notes. And then you sat down this time for a video interview with Michael Lerner at the New School at Commonweal. That is available on YouTube in its entirety. It's titled John Beebe, A Life in Jungian Practice, A Spiritual Biography. Michael Lerner in conversation with John Beebe. And I have to say, it is extraordinary. Your life, you start at the beginning, you're 
the time you uh, spent living in China and how you decided to become a psychiatrist and then a Jungian analyst. And it it, it is a jaw-dropping, inspiring interview. And uh, I'd like to thank uh, Michael Lerner for providing it uh, on his YouTube channel. So as I said, there will be links to both of those in the show notes. So we are here today to talk about the new volume uh, from the Philemon Foundation. What is your association with Philemon? Well, you can't talk about, uh, I love to try to pronounce the name because I've heard him pronounce it just the other day. I said, my goodness, I've been saying Philemon just as you do, being an American. Uh, Sonu Jamdasani, yeah. the master editor of uh, the Red Book and a professor of Jung history at London University, became my friend um, uh, in either late 1989 or very early in 1990. We, we met for the first time when he was still working at the uh, Freud Museum and had, was telling me that his real project was to get an accurate Jungian history. Mm. And uh, I met this young man and he was just so brilliant and smart and uh, interested in the kinds of things I'm interested in, uh, which include uh, interesting libraries. And so he introduced me to the uh, wonderful Warburg collection at the uh, Curteau Institute at that time in London. That was an archive of images that uh, the great Abby Warburg had, had put together and uh, was a source for many things, including uh, uh, the wonderful book, uh, Saturn and Melancholy, uh, a, a landmark in art history that James Hillman made a, a great deal about, um, that uh, the Warburg Institute was there and an archive of images even earlier than the uh, archive for research and archetypal symbolism that so many Jungians uh, pay attention to that uh, Olga, and I'll say her name as best I can, freebie captain, the uh, person who gave us Casa Aranos and the Aranos lectures that uh, uh, Jung, uh, extroverted intuitive woman that had been in analysis with Jung and all her attempts to draw mandalas had gotten her practically nowhere. And so she, Jung basically said, you really need to do something in the world. And what she did was Aranos and Aranos became a wonderful think tank for Jungians and a wonderful archive of archetypal images. But she was not the only one. There were just as there was Count Kaiserling in Jung's time. Mm -hmm. There was also Abby Warburg creating this wonderful archive of cultural images. Uh, and so, the first time I got a chance to go to that amazing library and see the way that particular collection was organized was thanks to Sonu, who had a key to the place and took me mm. in and gave me a tour. So his ability to find things that were interesting and put them in place immediately impressed me. And when I first heard him lecture on Jung studies proper, when he actually took up the question of the uh, uh, Frank Miller, the Miss Frank Miller, who, the, the American woman from the South who had uh, come up to the North and was giving uh, magic lantern shows and showing archetypal images in her own associations. Her, her, uh, her fantasies had been collected by uh, Theodore Flournois, who felt as one of his great mentors. He said there were two men in, in Memory Streams Reflections, Jung says there were two men that uh, he, he had met, the only two men he met, Sigmund Freud not being one of them, with whom he could have an uncomplicated conversation were Flournoy and uh, William James. Those people, they could talk about psychology and they wouldn't immediately fall into uh, projection and transference and rivalry and all the other things that seem to happen with Jung and absolutely everybody. And he knew absolutely everybody. He met all the players and he read all the players between the ages of 17 and 27. He was just amazingly uh, well-educated and was already, when he met Freud, more famous internationally at that time than 
Freud simply because he'd made some inroads into psychiatry because he read so much that he was able to take on things and be the chief assistant of Bloiler. But even Bloiler and he didn't have an uncomplicated conversation. Yeah. Flournoy and he did. And Flournoy had published these semi-unconscious, emergent uh, fantasies of uh, Miss Frank Miller. And Jung said, my God, this looks bad. And uh, I think this is what the prelude to a case of schizophrenia looks like. So Sonu had taken this and said, we don't really have all that much evidence that this woman was necessarily uh, chronically schizophrenic. In, in fact, we don't know. We just know that she was hospitalized in Boston a couple of times in what sounded like uh, a hypomanic episode. So it was really un unclear as to what it was. And also they, they had a those days, any woman who got hospitalized and mentioned anything sexual at all was immediately diagnosed as a, as a psychopathic personality. So mm -hmm. you couldn't trust psychiatric diagnosis. So Sonu taught us all to listen critically. Now, it turns out that someone finally found out where what happened to her, and she did end up actually uh, dying in a mental hospital in England mm -hmm. years later. So I think... Uh, in this case, Jung may have had at least partly the last word that whatever the condition was, she was headed toward uh, a long-term chronic psychosis of some kind. But it doesn't matter. Um, Sonu taught me and our whole generation to look at all the pieces of evidence mm -hmm. and read and think critically about what we hear and not believe things simply because they're written down and repeated by other people. Yes. And it goes on and on and on. I mean, uh, there are people who believe that uh, Tony Wolf, for instance, who was in a relationship with Jung, was basically Jung's therapist while he was going through the Red Book and that she was listening to the fantasies and that they were occurring in what was in effect an analysis as well as a uh, extramarital affair with her. Uh, and uh, yet Sonu has brought up the evidence that Jung tried to talk to her about the, the fantasies and she wasn't particularly interested in them. Mm -hmm. and, so it was, it, 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 and these are not, this is not to say Tony Wolf wasn't terribly important to Jung in many, many ways. And, it is, and it's not, but it's just that we, we get this. We have to get the story right and not wrong. And it's and he was the first person to let us know that it really wasn't Sabina Spielrein who was whispering in Jung's ear, "You're really an artist." Uh, 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 it was it was someone else. And uh, um, I'm going to say her name in a minute. You may be able to say her name. I have I have these moments these days when I can't say Maria Maltzer. Maria Maltzer. Maria Maltzer, who came from a Dutch brewing family and had a nursing degree, and she became, she was in an affair with Jung, uh, perhaps at the same time as his marriage with Emma and his relationship with Tony. It's not entirely clear, but for a little while, she had the, the big uh, place in Jung's life. Mm -hmm. But it was she who had already told Ricklin, who was working with Jung, that he was really an artist and not a psychiatrist. And he had fallen for it and tried and became a very minor uh, Zurich modernist. And Jung was not about to be told because he was a great illustrator and had done these wonderful pictures for the Red Book, that he was really an artist and not a scientist. And when, when she tried to lay that trip on him and perform the anima function for him, uh, Jung got really angry at her, and that's recorded. That's the woman they're talking about. That's mm -hmm. all the difference. Yeah. Uh, whether that's mm -hmm. whether it's Tony or whether it's uh, Sabina or whether it's Maria, and it also makes all the difference that when you go looking for women Jung was getting involved with sexually, um, there were really those three and and Emma, and Emma was by far the most important person in his life on the female side. Sonu has provided plenty of evidence that this is the case and has looked at every letter he can find and every piece of yeah. document. 
and can't verify, at least try to verify the history. And if Sonu is wrong, at least verify why you think Sonu is wrong. And, and, and that's what he led us the way to. We were in such need of that because, you know, we all have this, what Freud called it, the family romance. We all want to kind of, and we all have these fantasies about our parents. And we also have fantasies about our psychological parents and what they were doing when and where. That leads us to what's in this book. If there's nothing else in this book, as in volume one of the same series that came out just a couple of years before, if I recall correctly, because I, I got involved with both of them, there's a marvelous chronology of what Jung was doing in yes. the 30s, all the years in which he was giving these lectures with that unpronounceable Swiss name, which comes down to something like Swiss Polytechnic Institute, this, this place where Jung was giving lectures uh, uh, to the public. And it tells everything Jung did between 1933 and 1941. There are books like this for celebrities. I have one, um, I happen to love jazz singing and I love popular singing too. And I have a book that, that tells you everything Billie Holiday did her entire career mm. on every day of her life. So you can tell where she was appearing mm was doing and I have one that does exactly the same for Judy Garland and so the legends that have grown up around Billie Holiday and Judy Garland who both of whom had enormous legends following them because they were very active creatively and their shadows were busy too and uh, you can tell wonderful stories about them but believe me uh, Judy Garland was doing a lot more than taking pills and making suicide attempts and all mm -hmm. the and, and Billie Holiday was certainly doing a lot more than than just uh, being persecuted for, uh, uh, for 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 using for using heroin and singing the song "Strange Fruit." In other words, do you actually see what a career looks like? You realize how people public facing are incredibly busy, and I myself am discovering how many hours of each day is spent doing something or other. Yeah. There's really not a lot of time to do some of the things that people are legendarily, if only they had the time, and they would have been the first to tell you, if only we had the time to do all those things. So believe me, uh, Jung was not attending Nazi rallies every every day of, of his life. In fact, he never did attend a Nazi rally. And if I may mispronounce that word, uh, Nazi, uh, uh, in the 1930s, he was far too busy and far too busy in all kinds of ways of trying to carry the psychotherapy project forward under attack and trying to make clear what depth psychology can do and feeling that um, his own answer to what consciousness is and what the unconscious is and their relationship might be a better starting point than to have a grand narrative of unconscious dynamics, which had not necessarily protected the world from a massive unconscious dynamic taking hold. It was as if he wanted us to balance the understanding of the unconscious with an understanding of consciousness, even granting consciousness is the smallest part. Uh, like he's had a, this image of this disc, almost yeah. rotating this luminous disc on top of this great sphere, which is the entire psyche, most of which has to be unconscious. And, yeah. and then to see both the consciousness on top of the unconscious, and then also to see the implicit consciousness in the unconscious is quite a bit different from what Freud and Adler were saying in terms of uh, the unconscious is a very selfish thing against which we've uh, developed uh, either defenses, as, as Freud said, or fictions, as, as Adler said. Jung always wanted to to respect the peculiar intelligence of the background and to respect the conscious mind engaging with it. And he felt that was a good way to go. And it's true, he took every opportunity to explain his version versus the others. But I don't think we can sustain that Jung was simply an opportunist who saw a great opportunity in uh, Nazi Germany to use 
the German takeover to push a more uh, Germanic and folkish psychology. That's the myth that has come up that Jung was nothing but um, uh, a power seeker and that though he may not have been uh, a, a virulent anti-Semite, he was not above uh, capitalizing on what he could do and be thanks to the relatively greater support he might have received not being Jewish. In fact, the record is not, does not sustain that interpretation of Jung. It does not exonerate him from being insensitive in some of his remarks that everyone wishes he would not have made. But having bad feeling is not the same thing as having absolutely no conscience or integrity. And I think the record of him trying to save the psychotherapy practices of Jewish psychotherapists in, uh, in, uh, uh, in Germany is clear. And uh, the record of Anna Freud and Sigmund Freud pretty much not pressing back because uh, uh, they felt it was better for psychoanalysis not to fight back has come out on the psychoanalytic side in the meantime. And all we have to do is be Americans who've had to live under Trump and, 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 the, and, the, and the fallout from that and watch people trying to deal with Russia and Ukraine. Now that we are living in similar times, uh, you have a lot more empathy for people trying to find their way, their way in these times. But the main thing is if you look at the chronology, the worst things that can be said about Jung do not sustain how he was actually using his activity. Uh, it doesn't exonerate Jung from not being all that one might wish in terms of denunciation. And it does mean that, that he stays Swiss neutral at a time when to be neutral is already to take a position. We can't get away from that. But we certainly don't feel that we're looking at a, a terrible character who is merely narcissistic, merely opportunistic, who's made terrible compromises of integrity, has made some kind of deal with the devil. Jung was going to talk about his psychology and try to get people to understand it at all times and with everyone, it's in every letter, every lecture, every piece of writing. It was not done with anyone else's permission, but his own tremendous drive to get this said in his lifetime. And he was consistent with that throughout. And I think one can only respect the fact that he stayed on the case through all the inflations that it gave him and all the times that he talked beyond what he knew. He kept at the project of trying to show what he had found, verify it, and learn from it. And it's a, it's, it doesn't make him, as Edward Edinger said, the most conscious man who ever lived, but he's one of the most conscientious men mm -hmm ever lived at the at the job of trying to see how hard it is to be conscious and how possible it is nonetheless. If that's what Edinger meant, I couldn't agree with him more. I can't get a better example, but uh, we come to this book and the interesting part of the book is that Jung continuously displays how unconscious he is at the same time that how interested he is in consciousness. And mm -hmm. I think that he makes himself a living example of the problem as he, as he talks in a very relaxed way, letting all of his prejudices, biases, uh, uh, partial emphases, personality traits just show is itself very winning. He, he becomes every man trying to take mm -hmm. an enlightenment education 
and making something of the fact that we still remain incredibly unconscious and what should we do about that? When does that help us and when does that hurt us? That was his project. And he did it with a great deal of, of vitality and verve and it comes across beautifully in this book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I... Hmm. I wanted to kind of start at the beginning, uh, but we sort of jumped right in there. And I think for the listeners, I would like for you, if you would, to define consciousness. So what, from a Jungian perspective, from Jung's point of view, your point of view as an analyst, what do you mean when you say consciousness? Because that word is a little heavy right now and can mean lots of different things. For instance, I used to work in the neurology department after college and uh, consciousness was about whether somebody was physically conscious or not. And then when I was in analysis, we often talked about me becoming conscious. So what is consciousness? What does consciousness mean to you? A wonderful question. It's one of the most difficult to define words yeah. that has ever been made. Um, I have a friend, uh, Robert Gruden, who actually was in the same class at Harvard as as, as I was, uh, uh, and uh, Robert has talked about how substituting the word awareness for consciousness doesn't help at all. I mean, you just have to ask what is awareness? Uh, Well, so let's, 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 let's let Emerson says language is always wise. And I I really think he's right about that. Mm. So I just want to look, I want to look in the, this dictionary. It's just the Webster's international that I keep just to see what they say. It's a word that says con- that I want to try to get what the con part of it is because I think that's the real question. Um, I think about this all the time, and I'm so embarrassed that something I spend all my time with is not something I can define easily. But that's mm-hmm. the whole way in which I keep on working is to keep going back to first things and see if I can't get somewhere by going back. So here it says. The first definition is awareness or perception of an inward psychological or spiritual fact. Mm. It feels like Jung did his work pretty well, if that's the first definition here. Mm -hmm. Intuitively perceive knowledge of of something in one's inner self. Isn't that interesting that 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 would be the first definition? That that certainly that's as that's that's a good dictionary. What dictionary is that? Dr. This is Webster's Third International Dictionary. It okay. came with a set of the Encyclopedia Britannica, which I didn't need to keep, uh, but I did keep the Webster's Third New International Dictionary. Now that we have, the, I'm impressed, and I love that definition. So why don't we start there? Because it's certainly what Jung means. I, I lucked out. This, uh, by the way. That's my dominant function of consciousness, extroverted intuition, because I've never mm-hmm. looked this word up before in this dictionary. <laughs> and so it happened in the moment with you, and, and only I would have known that it would have not taken us down the rabbit hole. <laughs> awareness or perception of an inward psychological or spiritual fact, intuitively perceived knowledge of something in one's inner self. Now, when I want to think of consciousness, I going to Harvard, when I went to Harvard, the big name, and I, I was an English major, the big yeah. name on campus was not William James, but Henry James. Mm. I, when I was an undergraduate at Harvard, the one writer that I read consistently throughout my Harvard years mm. was Henry James. And I wrote my honors thesis in part on the Golden Bowl. The rest of it was on uh, oh. passage to India. And if you start at the beginning of the Golden Bowl, um, uh, very early on in the first chapter, as I recall, uh, Maggie Verver, who is 
there's she has, she has the there's the image that there's a kind of tower of ivory of some kind. Jung later used that image for the title of a later novel he never finished uh, because he stopped in the middle of writing it called the Ivory Tower. But this is 1904 when he publishes. Uh, 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 the Golden Bowl, and it starts with, she's outside of this, and she has the sense that something's going on inside if she can only get to it. And that's her way of becoming aware that she inside herself has been having a certain presentiment of something, and it is presenting itself to her consciousness and she can't quite get her hand on it. But what it is, is that her husband, Prince Amerigo, is having an affair. And not just with anyone, but with uh, uh, the young wife of Maggie's father. And that's the given of the golden bowl. And the golden bowl represents the marriage. It's, a, it's a, something found at a... At a, at a at an antique store in London and it has a crack in it and there's a flaw in her marriage. But it all starts with that presentiment. And so it's an inner presentiment which enables her to imagine how she's imagining an outer situation. So that image of the tower and so forth is her self's way of half dreaming her own struggle to understand something that's beginning to dawn on her. But the real issue at the beginning is, and with the novel as a whole is, what do you do with the knowledge you have that something's not quite as it should be? And it seems so that really says what Jung is saying here in, in these lectures, that even though he was the first to tell us we have extroversion and introversion. He sets that aside and doesn't fall into the trap of its consciousness is, I am figuring out like a detective that my husband is having an affair. That's not it. Rather, as I train myself to what myself is doing, myself, upon inward reflection is registering news of a difference of some kind. Mm -hmm. It was really Gregory Bateson who said the, who really cleared this up for me when I heard him lecture when I was a psychiatric resident at Stanford and he has, the lect has some of the materials of the lecture I heard in a wonderful book called Steps to an Ecology of Mind which came out in the early 70s. And he was lecturing along the lines of what's in that book in the, it went, it, it, to us at Stanford. And he explained something that neuroscientists should listen to today. He said, you know, if you think, you know, everybody now is, and he was talking to us as people in the very exciting days when they just finished learning within the past 25 years something about how the nerve impulses transmitted and they would do experiments with the giant squid axon because you could actually mm -hmm. see it and test it electrically at uh, marine laboratories, how the nerve impulses. He said, if you believe that what is passing along the axon of the squid is a nerve impulse, you never will, it's an impulse and that that's what's traveling along that nerve axon, you will miss the entire point uh, because what's traveling along it is not an electrical impulse. It's news of a difference. Hmm. Hmm. That has just informed my entire, so that and Maggie Verver feeling that hmm. something's different about her marriage. Yep. And, and, and uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, an actress that I like a lot who's able to show and act 
what that looks like is Nicole Kidman. She's perfectly good at being a kind of rather blank face that registers. And more than once, most recently, brilliantly playing uh, Lucille Ball uh, in that Meet the Ricardos movie. Oh. She, 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 she registers throughout what it's like to have the love of your life and you make a fabulous show together and to feel that he's actually cheating on the marriage and she keeps trying to address that with him and he keeps denying it and she can't put it together because in every possible way he's taking care of her and given they have this wonderful show and yeah. she's the star in show business at that time and they're the greatest success and she had never been that before and they and he unquestionably loves her and yet you watch her working with that presentiment meanwhile as an artist playing it out in various ways but then gradually to the point that no longer can she deny it it's a perfect evocation of what james is talking about what Jung is talking about uh, it's 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 this dawning perception that starts usually not as Jung often starts it with a sensory detail, although that may be a trigger, but with a kind of intuitive awareness. Uh, when when Jung really began to break with Freud, he was reading Bergson. Uh, and uh, Bergson's book translated into English as Creative Evolution was in Jung's hand around 1909, somewhere around in that period. And uh, first it was first in French and then it was in English. So he had one of the first uh, copies of the book. And uh, there he gets an inkling that there is a category, the irrational. At first, mm -hmm. Jung thinks, oh, I see, that's the unconscious. The unconscious is the irrational. So as, as late as 1912, when he writes the first version of Symbols of Transformation, which has another, slightly other name, Transformation and Symbols of the Libido, that would be the English way of saying the first version of it. And he publishes it in uh, 1911 and 1912. And there, he's, he's very like Freud talking about the primary process and the secondary process. He says that we have two kinds of thinking. One is the directed thinking of the conscious, and we have, the other is the undirected thinking of the unconscious. So he's making the conscious rational and directed, and he's making the unconscious undirected. Then something big happens, um, and it's it's the presentiments, the visions that he has, that Europe is going to be covered with a lake of blood. He's just going on a typical Sunday to his uh, mother-in-law's house for dinner, as so many people in Switzerland and France would always do. That you Sundays when you went to, to your your wife's mother's house or your husband's mother's house, and she had and your she has a dinner and the family gathers, and so she was going to one of those family gatherings on a train. And suddenly this vision came of this sort of, I, I, simplest way to say it is a lake of blood, that brownish. Well, Jung was a psychiatrist. He thought that was the unconscious taking him over and he thought he was doing a schizophrenia. I mean, he knew that schizophrenic, as a psychiatrist, he knew that people who have psychotic breaks, it starts with an image of world catastrophe. So every textbook, mm. lawyers included, would say that. So he had every reason to, to fear that he was going crazy and he wondered how long he had before it happened. Well, that, was, that image was in the fall, as I recall, of 1913. And it was actually July 31st of 19. 1914, when he was lecturing in, uh, as you probably know, in Aberdeen, 
and that was the day that the assassination of uh, uh, the crown prince uh, Ferdinand in Austria was uh, uh, revealed. And as a consequence of that, uh, he realized that's 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 a spam risk. So we have to just turn it off. <laughs> but. Uh, He realized he hadn't been crazy at all. Yeah. He had been intuitively aware. Now, he could have said, my unconscious picked up the trend. And so the unconscious is irrational, but it's also intelligent. He could mm -hmm. have taken that choice. But instead... What he evolved in the next seven years was the theory of psychological types in which he introduced irrational consciousness, not as a contradiction in terms, but that we all have eight functions of consciousness function attitudes of consciousness and I'll tell you how we get there. Four of them are going to be rational. And four of them are going to be irrational. Now, the way we get there is if you say that we have functions of consciousness that Jung took the trouble to name, and he named sensation and thinking and feeling and intuition, and he analyzed them in a very original and interesting way so that he realized that feeling is just as rational as thinking. And he realized that sensation is just as irrational as intuition. The world was so caught in logical positivism, that, which was all about sensation and thinking, that people got mixed up and they thought the sensation was rational because the thinking that accompanied it in the scientific method was rational, but it wasn't. And the sensation is just given to us and there's actually an irrational aspect to it which is what astronomers learned and so Nusyam Dasani talks about this in his book about you know the making of modern psychology the uh, uh, the dream of a science Jung in the making of modern psychology the dream of the science the 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 astronomer uh, in the early 19th century who discovered that two people looking at the same star are going to measure the distance differently because their sensation is controlled by a, per a personal equation. So that even the very data on which science depends has something to do with a certain irrational quality to it. It becomes hilarious in medicine because uh, I grew up in medical school. Everybody knew that if your temperature was 98.6, uh, that was normal, and if it was too low or too high, you either had a viral illness, it got too low, it went down to 97, and if you had a bacterial illness, it went up to 102 or something. Uh, and we all took that for granted, and 98.6 was the gold standard until someone measured the thermometer about mm -hmm. five or 10 years ago and discovered that everybody had never bothered to see if the thermometer that they were using as the standard, the German thermometer, and it turned out there was an error in the German thermometer and the actual correct uh, level is 98.4. Yet this was oh. taught in medical schools all the way. So there's another example mm -hmm. of the very thing we depend upon, uh, evidence. And when we get into quantum physics, the, the essential irrationality of, 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 of sensation has become very clear to us and people take it for granted. So he made feeling rational. We nowadays do understand that feeling is as reasonable as thinking. We can, we've got that down. And we now understand that sensation can be as irrational as intuition. But that he would say that 
whether we use them in an extroverted or an introverted way, that is whether we get energy by sharing them with other people or whether we have to go inside ourselves and check them out against our archetypes, which is the introverted move, to see if they get to construct experience. Those four f functions, sensation, extroverted, and introverted, uh, intuition, extroverted, introverted, are all irrational consciousness. And those other four functions, extroverted thinking, ext introverted feeling, extroverted uh, uh, feeling and introverted thinking, those two are all rational functions. So in other words, we have four irrational consciousnesses and four rational consciousnesses. Mm -hmm. So if you take the news of the difference, or you take Maggie Verver, or you take Nicole Kidman, or you take John Beebe, uh, uh, going to the dictionary, um, consciousness can be all those things, and on top of that, there's an unconscious. Mm. Some parts of those and some parts of yeah. those we haven't met exist. So we we begin to see the exquisite problem of a young to try to figure out how in that complexity do you dare to speak at all of a conscious and how do you and how do you dare to speak of an unconscious without realizing that You've got a mystery and a muddle going together, just mm. as Forster used to talk about. Mm. There's a mystery and there's a muddle. And, that, and it seems to me that uh, that little definition I pulled out is a way of saying all of this is psychological. And that's where Jung really lands. Mm. Psyche, when he reason he takes these categories up is that psyche uses these categories to construe and has the same difficulty psychologists have making sense of it. So that we're all sitting with what we think is a reasonable or unreasonable way to make sense of things, sitting on top of something that's trying to tell us the news of the difference that, that our survival depends on. And we said, so we have this strange phenomenon and the way I look at it is, at one level, it's all con it's all consciousness. Mm -hmm. Another level, you might as just as easily say it's all unconscious. Yep. In this book, here comes Jung again, trying to say this to lay people to explain his ideas, and he says something very very lovely. He says, consciousness operates by deduction. Yeah. And. The unconscious prefers to use analogy. Yeah, I was hoping you would get into that because uh, is, if that if we just had that sentence, this would be a great contribution to the Jungian literature. Nobody else said that anywhere else like that. Freud never says it that way. Yeah. Would you explain, because I attended the webinar on Sunday, the Philemon Foundation's book launch webinar for this book, and you spoke so interestingly about how it's not metaphor, it's analogy. And I'd like for you to, if you would, explain to our listeners uh, or tell our listeners what you said, because I've never heard a Jungian analyst say that before. I've been confused about the whole uh, issue of metaphor. Uh, I wasn't feeling it. And then I heard you say that and a light went off. Do you remember what you said? Well, I, I, I never remember what I said, but I remember <laughs> I that. I, remember that I have theme. notes. I never, I remember, I remember the theme and I do remember talking about it. What I would say here is <clears throat> if you take the word P-H-O-R, it has something to do with how we feel about something. For instance, we speak of euphoria when we're feeling particularly well mm -hmm. and I know the word isn't commonly used by lay people, but it is commonly used by psychotherapists and particularly by psychiatrists. When people are not happy, whether depressed or anxious or just don't feel like themselves, a, a very easy word to use is dysphoria, 
D-Y-S-P-H-O-R-I-A. I'm sure you've encountered it. And so most of what people talk about in psychotherapy is that which is dysphoric to them. Uh, that is which makes them feel. So in that universe of fours, I would, I would add metaphor, P-H-O-R. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and I like to do this with language just as I like to do with pathy. I like to do sympathy, empathy, and telepathy because mm -hmm. I think all of those pathies have to do with something to do with feeling. Well, so does P-H-O-R as a matter of fact. And feeling is so important and in, 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 in feelings are so important in emotion that we would be really doing a service of all we did was talk about feeling, feelings, and emotions. Uh, Suzanne Langer talked about mind, and then she, in a wonderful two-volume book, Mind, colon, an essay in human feeling. Mm -hmm. So when we get to the four, uh, a metaphor is something that makes us feel different about something. So the example I would like to use of a metaphor, poets use metaphors all the time. And I use the example of, in my paper, The Trickster and the Arts, which appeared in the new clinical, uh, cla the clinical classics of yeah. the new ancestors, of, edited by Carpani, uh, Stefano Carpani. I talk about, uh, she has the very famous line, rose is a rose is a rose and she tells us why she did that in a lecture she gave at the University of Chicago when someone said, why did you write it that way? And she said, I'm not a fool. I know people don't say is a, is a, is a, but I'm a poet and it's difficult to be a poet in a late age, you know. Mm. Uh, everybody and his brother had already said, my love is like a red, red rose, you know, and she said, when I wrote rose is a rose is a rose, the rose became red for the first time in English poetry in 200 years. Mm. That's something about the repetition. Of course, it's all based on, it comes from a poem about her love for her woman partner. It's all about what it must be like to have a woman making love to another woman and just experiencing the unfolding of the rose and nothing but the rose how marvelous how marvelous and that's something that uh robert burns couldn't do uh he couldn't mm -hmm. know that and so she made that available to all of us and made us feel the delight of that and that a very and brought brought her partner with her to the when she came to america to talk about it and said that and talked about the rose being red so she's using the metaphor to push us into feeling the redness of the rose, something she'd experienced in a, in a personal way, and that she wanted us to get back. We need to get the feminine back, and she helped us get there mm. in the rose and in the redness of the rose, so and in the odor, everything. Now, that's metaphor. It is deliberately trying to move you in a certain direction. And our minds love metaphors. We constantly go after mm -hmm. metaphors to, to motivate ourselves. The unconscious, however, and this is where I think Jung's peculiar intelligence of the background mm -hmm. is the key to his entire work. Mm -hmm. The unconscious does not try to use metaphors to get us to deduce the connections we need to be to be more conscious, making, I just helped, I hope some people become a little more conscious of um, what a lesbian woman poet could teach us about love, for example, in a world that doesn't sometimes recognize that even at this point. And so it seems, and especially about loving a woman. And so I, I, I gave that. Uh, and I'm, and I'm using that metaphor to help people see something that they have a hard time seeing. Mm -hmm. That's all my attempt to be conscious and to make you all a little more aware of something. But the unconscious would not have done, it does not use metaphor, it uses analogy. And so 
von Franz gives us a marvelous example of that when she talks about a dream. She was like, she was a woman buying a, 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 a house and without a husband, and she had to sign a uh, uh, Marie Louise von Franz, the great Jungian psych, that she's a Jungian and she's she's not married to someone with money. She has to sign and she, there's going to be a mortgage. And she gets into a terrible state. My God, what if I, what if my practice fails? What if I don't have enough money? What if I can't pay the mortgage? If anybody who's ever been an intuitive person and introverted buying a house would know what this feels like. And like many introverted intuitives, they want to say something, they want to, they go right to the point of doing something and then they panic and take all the clothes back to the store, or go back and say, kill the escrow, I'm not buying this house. So she was going through that. And then she had a dream that there was a terrible tempest brewing. Well, that was very much like the state of mind she was in, except it was happening in her bathtub. <laughs> she said, well, I tempest in the bathtub. That can't be that bad. And she signed, she signed for the house. In other words, she was trying to keep herself clean. You know, that, that fantasy that we have, we don't want to be in debt, we're just going to keep ourselves clean. So it was so perfect. And, and it was sort of hilarious. Now, she didn't go into the alchemical bath. I mean, the, 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 she didn't go into all the amplifications here and you go. The dream says it all. It's an exact analogy means in Greek, in exact proportion to. Mm -hmm. Yes, she was having a terrible tizzy <laughs> in a very contained yeah. place. It isn't that big a problem and, it, and, the, and, the, and the unconscious said it. That's not metaphor. That's cutting anxiety down to size and seeing where it fits into the whole. And she made the right decision on, as she did, would on the basis of a very sensible dream. Mm -hmm. Told her that her anxiety belonged to a certain effort she had to stay as clean as possible that we all wish and usually decide that the risk of having a mortgage is, is better than the uh, being locked out of owning one's own home and one's property. So she made the, she made the decision on the basis of an image that by analogy helped her deal with the anxiety that had come up for her. That's what the unconscious does. And the conscious cannot do that. The unconscious, mm -hmm. the conscious cannot do that. The unconscious can. Occasionally, great geniuses come up with exactly the right analogy, but more often, uh, the use is the, the use of the conscious is deduction uh, and metaphors are are used to support deduction and support and they become arguments for deduction uh, there are exceptional people I think Jesus with his parables is, is often using analogies that are astonishing and I think that's why he's so large in people's mm -hmm. mind uh, because he he has not just the introverted intuition but he almost is like the unconscious and in that there's something mm -hmm. very divine in him so that's where the you really feel that i mean i don't want to offend anyone who there's little i don't know what's going on literally but the magnitude is enormous I mean, it's so unusual the way analogy is used by him. Uh, there's a bit of that in Lincoln. Uh, there's a bit of that in different truly great individuals. But for the most part, human beings are, are caught in deduction and, and metaphor. And the unconscious is far more direct and simply recalls from the accumulated experience of the human race the example that puts perfectly in perspective that what we're dealing with. Jung is trying to get at that in these lectures in his own interesting way. Yeah. And we live between these two worlds of thought and intelligence. They're both actually kinds of consciousness, but one we can direct or we can let be undirected in a comfortable way the other blows us away because it's so precise and we have no idea where that precision comes from. 
except that it's deeply rooted in an instinct that comes up with this peculiar intelligence. And there's this, these lovely hundred pages or so of lectures in which he just talks around and about all of that in the loveliest of ways. Mm -hmm. You also had mentioned that his riff on intuition uh, was uh, unparalleled, uh, the section of the book on intuition. And another thing you mentioned is that his irony, you said Jung's irony has yet to be adequately interpreted. Well, that gets into the parts of Jung that are so hard to talk about because, yeah. because of, of where we are. And, and there are places in Jung that are amazingly uh, offensive, uh, especially when he starts talking about his trip to Africa and Algonia. And, and then he has a tendency... He goes on safari, he has a tendency to, to take on a Kipling, a Rudyard Kipling-esque uh, kind of language that becomes very annoying. But when you actually, because he, the way he talks about um, Africans uh, who are cave dwellers, he talks about them as if they had no consciousness and that they only had instinct, but unfortunately they didn't have any will that would enable them to direct their, their consciousness. But then he tells what I think is a very hilarious story where he tries to get an African runner to take a letter to a uh, quite a number of kilometers away. Uh, the, the man's going to have to run all night to, 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 to deliver the letter to some people on, on a ship. And Jung keeps saying, now the, these white people uh, uh, live in a house on the water and the and uh, and the, the, the runner just looks at him and doesn't know, and, and Jung is, is, is just cannot get this man to run. And so finally the head man says, looks at Jung and says, look, these are very stupid Negroes and uh, they don't know anything. So uh, so, I, so he screams at, at the man and, and tells the man all the bad things that will happen to him if he doesn't take Jung's letter and so forth. And then the man runs off and runs for for hours and hours and hours. And Jung is just blown away by the enormous extroverted sensation skill and wondered how the head man had managed to uh, to uh, to bring that out of him. If you read this with Jung's irony, Jung is just as ridiculous as the head man bawling the other man out. And the two men are putting on a show for Jung and Jung has been trying to talk down to them and it, with some kind of extroverted thinking analogy that they're not willing to listen to. Uh, the other man knows how to talk to this man in a way that will both please Jung and also light a fire under the man. And the man joyously and with great directed extroverted sensation consciousness delivers the letter. So Jung leaves us feeling who's unconscious and who's conscious. Or you could read the word Negro, or you could read the word uh, uh, lack of will, uh, and, and you could read the word uh, primitive, the way he uses it, which is a synonym for primordial, but also has the prejudices of, of uh, Lucien Levy-Brill, who wrote a book called How Natives Think, as if he knew, because he never did anthropological field work. Jung's story contains the irony in which Jung is a player. I'm not trying to justify everything Jung said, and you can take statements that Jung makes ironically, and since Jung is making them, once again, he doesn't recognize his power, and it could be seen as racist dialogue and has been so criticized. And But what he's showing us is again and again how how quote-unquote primitive Western consciousness is in trying to engage with consciousnesses of other cultures and other typologies than the ones favored in the West. If thinking and intuition are favored in the, in, 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 in the Western development, feeling and sensation is still very alive and well in, in, in Africa. You can see perfectly well why the runner wouldn't run. It wasn't that he didn't have a will, as Jung was theorizing. <laughs> So you get lost in the in the pancake and all this rather quickly, as, as the Swedish say. But 
Jung is ironic in the sense that he doesn't pretend himself to be on top of consciousness. He's in the midst of the problem. Mm -hmm. So you can read even these terrible examples that could make you want to stop reading Jung altogether and come back to them and back to them and say, they're like clients. The more you look at them, the more you look at the problem rather than you look at Jung's solution. So he's not writing a dogma here and he's not a role model in how we should be thinking. He's, he's a fellow sufferer in the difficulty of getting anything right in this department. That I think is worth attending to. I, I admire his openness in showing himself. I don't agree with all of his opinions. And I said in my, my endorsement of the book, discovering these lectures, we begin to appreciate that the interplay Jung experiences between what he can and cannot know is how the psyche energizes him. We follow him in respecting our own amateur status, weighing what we will and will not accept in his assertions. And I do stand by that endorsement. Mm -hmm. And I think we're going to have to leave it right there, Dr. Beebe, because I know you have to go at 25 past the hour. Is that still the case? It's the case. Okay. So I'm going to let you go. Uh, I just would like to add, you said this book was both difficult and enchanting. And uh, I would I would tend to agree. So uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate your time, uh, your insights. And um, I will, I think I do have enough time, a couple minutes to read the outro and wrap this up. Please visit the website, speaking of Jung, that's J-U-N-G.com for more information on everything that was discussed here in this episode. There you'll also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or to download for free. Speaking of Jung is also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon Music. So with special thanks to the Philemon Foundation and to Dale Eastman at the C.G. Jung Institute of San Francisco, I'm Laura London, and you've been watching a special video edition of Speaking of Jung.